Welcome to the Fearless Women Podcast. We're inspiring conversations for the unafraid. I'm Janice McDonald, founder of The Beacon Agency, author, and global champion for women. Why am I making this show? Because I want to share the inspiring stories of women leaders in business, arts and culture, politics, and more with all of you. Hear how they've chosen to go forward and be bold and make the world a better place, even when it wasn't easy to do. Subscribe now wherever you find podcasts. Hey, everybody, I'm Janice McDonald. Welcome to the Fearless Women Podcast. Thank you for listening from all over Canada and other places in the world, including USA, New Zealand, the UK, and so many more countries. It's great to know that these beautiful stories being shared on this podcast from inspiring people are touching so many of you. Keep sending me emails at fearlesswomenpodcast at gmail.com. It's always great to connect. And please follow us on Instagram too. We want our community to grow. So my book, Fearless, Girls with Dreams, Women with Vision, was released in March. It's filled with incredible true stories from amazing women. Thank you so much for your support. So it is particularly exciting for me to have this guest on today. She's as fearless as they come. It's so special to have this author on the show. She's written a powerful memoir that I'm so excited to share with all of you. CBC Books in Canada included it on their list of 20 moving Canadian memoirs to read right now. But buckle up. This is a book about grief and its messiness, but also, as CBC says, it's a book about life and its beauty. Nobody ever talks about anything but the end. That's the title. It's written by film and TV producer and writer, Liz Levine. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thanks, Janice. Glad to be here. Such a pleasure to have you on the show. We have so much to cover. So let's begin with the book. Your book has been described as a genuinely moving, funny, and inventive account of loss and grief, mental illness, and suicide. Not exactly easy topics to write about. And yet you've written about these very topics in the aftermath of the deaths of your sister, Tamara, who died by suicide, and your childhood sweetheart and best friend, Judson, who you lost to cancer. Tell us more. Uh, well, the book was the journey, as I think the life and losses are. You know, Judson uh, died, I guess, 14 years ago now, and, and really the book started as a matter of process. I, I wrote in order to understand that loss. It was an act of sense-making for me mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, and then I put that half-written book in a bottom drawer and moved on with all kinds of other things in my career. And then three years ago, lost my sister. And that sort of instigated me pulling it out of a bottom drawer and looking at where very distinctive types of losses come together. Um, You know, Judson died of cancer I was able to say goodbye. It was a death that had a label and something that I could deeply comprehend about it. My sister died by suicide. Her illness really did not have a label until the last couple months before her death. And it was something very different and hard to understand. And yet they they fit together in a way that made me curious about exploring that. And that was sort of the beginnings of where the book itself came from. 
you know, the, the through line of the story, I think, is quite focused on my sister. And that actually happened because I went to a live storytelling event called The Flame, which is Canada West Coast version of The Moth, which is a big New York live storytelling podcast. And I told a story called The Easter Bunny, which has since ended up in the book. I told it live in the room and somebody wrote it down and it got published by the walrus and from that moment on i started a dialogue with a literary agent hillary mcmahon at westwood and she was just encouraging and supportive and the bulk of the stories came really in the two months after that and for the decade that half of this book sat in a desk it really was only an eight to ten week process to go from there to having envisioned it from top to bottom and really being able to finish it. It's such an incredibly powerful book. A quote from the book, I feel like I might be a terrible person to be laughing in these moments, but it turns out I'm not alone. Uh, Say more about that. I mean, I think both loss and mental health have areas that they are funny, whether that is someone's behavior under pressure, it's an event you have to go to, a set of ritualized some things. And, you know, laughter really is the opposite of grief. It's coming to the surface. It's taking a breath of air. It's oxygen. And I think under that pressure, personally, I am known to laugh. I'm, I'm a giggler. I often stand on a film set and my DP tells me, you know, you laugh when you're under pressure. And it is amazing because it kind of relaxes all of the people around me. And I think it's just something we do to, to get air. And I'm not alone in that. I think that this is something that's very shared. And we check ourselves in these spaces because it feels socially or culturally inappropriate, especially around grief, loss, mental health, all of these things. But they are as messy and as funny and as sad and as poignant as things like love and dating and places where it would feel much more natural for us to be laughing. So a little bit of that statement is not only do I do it, but I really want to give permission to others to be able to do the same. And your niece talks about your sister's funeral in an interesting way. Yes, the the unveiling, actually. I mean, that is part of the joy of laughter, too. You know, from, from the mouths of a child is always mm. the way. And so for them at a very young age to come, they didn't come to the funeral, but to come to the cemetery for the unveiling and to go through this process where they get these little flowers and they get to put them down in specific places and there's a sense of a family ritual that they now have a role in and they're old enough to maybe participate with the family and her exclamation as she finished very solemnly laying her last rose was this is so much fun (laughs) (laughs) you know it was beautiful it is it's beautiful and it's honest and Mm -hmm. you know what is amazing about children is that you really get a sense of honesty that as adults it's almost been beaten out of us because it's not correct or it's not appropriate and I think you know when it comes to emotions I often have to ask what that language even means 
what is appropriate? You're feeling something. And the expression (laughs) of that is appropriate enough. Yeah. That whole idea. And you talk about this idea of, you know, kind of giving yourself permission to laugh and cry and do whatever you need to process your grief. It's uh, so powerful. Oh, thank you. Well, it's important. And I have, you know, watched a lot of other people move through grief as well. And if we can't laugh, we also lose that sense of memory. We don't always want to think of somebody as sick or in the final days that we maybe saw them or interacted with them. And laughing, you know, is about circling back. When I brought this chapter up with my mother, she was very quick to tell me that when her father passed away, in Florida, and they shipped the body home that the coroner's office had called her to say, ma'am, Mr. Cowan has arrived home in his pajamas, and that all she could do was hang up the phone and just laugh and laugh and laugh because (laughs) it was ridiculous, and that is part of life. Yeah. So you took a very interesting uh, structure to the book. You used the alphabet to tell your story. It's obviously a unique approach. Why did you choose this innovative structure for this powerful story? I think a few reasons. You know, the first, because I told Easter Bunny out loud and it was a short story, the short story format feels very natural to me. It's instinctive. It's the way that my voice works, even speaking. So I always wanted to group them that way and sort of have the reader work through the moments, the hits of emotion, the turning points, instead of all of the details in between. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at that point, there are only so many ways to organize things in the world. You can organize them numerically, you can organize them thematically, you can organize them temporally, and you can organize them alphabetically. And for me, at the end of the day, the alphabet allowed me to really play with time and the order in which events happen. I really didn't want to structure the book that it started with one death and kind of built up to another. I wanted everybody who dies in the book dies in the first three pages. (laughs) And if you make it that far, you've made it and you can, you know, sort of settle in and enjoy the rest. And I read a book that I reference in the opening chapter of my book by David Levitan, who is Mm -hmm. probably most known for his young adult work, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, which became a big movie. Oh yeah, Mm -hmm. One of his more obscure pieces of adult work is called The Lover's Dictionary, and Mm -hmm. it is structured in a very similar way to mine, and we'll have like, oh, opera, I'll never take you there again. (laughs) And at the end of the whole book, you realize that every word in the dictionary is a synonym for love, Mm -hmm. and I really felt the same way about loss. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's a beautiful way to go on the journey of your story. And I, I really love it. So Liz, any advice for others who want to share their story, whether it's uh, a memoir or even just uh, finding their voice and, you know, sharing hard things to say? Any tips? I mean, don't write for an audience. If you go into telling a story worried about who is hearing it, then I think that you lose a layer of authenticity. And so it's really about coming from an honest place and then worrying about your mother, your brother, your lover later. 
that there's time to polish. And I find the biggest miss is in the first go round. No one is reading this, but you try not to worry about the external world. Try not to worry about being judged and just tell the truth because the truth is always a good story. I love that. It's very freeing, right? It's permission to say what you need to say and then figure out (laughs) if you're still going to say it a little later on. Correct. And that's where the fearlessness or the bravery might come in. But what's great about the process of writing is those two events can happen separately. Mm -hmm. When you get up on stage and do something live, you have to grapple with all of that at once. But when you write, you can close the door to that room and put on your favorite music. You can sit and write without your clothes on for all that we care. No (laughs) one is ever going to know. And so once you're doing that, you might as well be telling the truth. So uh, practical and so helpful. So with all this wisdom, what's something you wish you knew earlier? I mean, on many different layers, lots of things, but with regards specifically to this story, you know, I wish that I had understood that my sister had an illness. Mm -hmm. I wish that I understood that mental health was like cancer. And this is one of the big reasons that I really chose to track these two losses through the book was to show people that if we talked about mental health the way we talked about cancer, if we had the diagnostic language, it's stage four, it's ovarian, it's metastasized, it's, then we would treat these losses as we do when we lose someone to any other disease. Mm -hmm. We would understand that we aren't medical professionals. I, you know, never have a moment of guilt around someone who dies of cancer because I don't know how to cure cancer. And I think it also opens a lot of doors around empathy and understanding. I think we're often challenged by people with mental health issues because we don't understand them or they don't understand us to the same level. And if we could begin to identify this as a disease, if I had understood this was a disease, I think our behavior is a little different under those circumstances. Yeah, we're more understanding. And, you know, we haven't even been talking about uh, mental health until more recently. Correct. Right? Like it's, yeah. it's just been something we're so uncomfortable about and don't talk about. And mental health right now, even as we start to talk about it, is still a very big bucket. It identifies everybody from someone with mild depression who maybe struggles to get to work on time or to start their day off right, all the way to somebody who has a severe set of mental health challenges that maybe have them seeing or hearing things that aren't there. And the bucket is so big that we don't understand the difference. Whereas when you have something removed from your arm, it's a very mild skin cancer. It's a, we're just going to take this away. We understand all of these variations on a disease like that. And our language, as you say, and conversation around mental health is so new that we don't yet understand these nuances. And that prohibits us from talking about it because we don't have the right language. Mm -hmm. You talk about reverse engineering in the words and details and the act of being vulnerable. Say more. I mean, I think that, again, for me, this is about sense-making. I also feel that it is 
specific to people who are very strong or very composed under pressure or in crisis. And I am strong and composed in those spaces, but it also often means that the emotional experience of those moments is being put somewhere else for me in those times. So reverse engineering an experience, working backwards through it in a moment that you don't have to deliver for anybody else, that you're not under the pressure to perform, really allows you to explore the emotions and the behaviors and actions that you took, or in this case that I took, and which ones were effective and which weren't, and and how they sort of all add up to where you stand now. Mm -hmm. So take me back to the 10-year-old Liz. Where'd you live? (laughs) What were you into? Um, How would you describe that girl? You know, that girl and this one are lucky enough to have grown up in a great family. And for all of the trauma of this story, that girl was hugged and loved and went to soccer practice and baseball practice and played Mm -hmm. instruments and took music lessons and had these three amazing tiny creatures at home that when the school day or the camp day were over, they weren't really over because I could come home and we could play school and I could teach them all things. And I think it's always an optical illusion getting into somebody else's life because for all of the trauma of this story, that childhood was really quite happy. That's lovely. Yeah. It's uh filled with, as you said, music and sports and uh, hangout time and fun. And and so how do you relate that to the person you are now? I think that I carry that sense of fun with me. Certainly, my day job as a creative person involves a lot of play. Mm -hmm. And growing up in a house full of siblings and occasionally two hamsters, a budgie, a pet bunny rabbit, (laughs) you know, your sense of play is sort of very, very heightened. And that's something that I have definitely carried with me into this space. And then I think always as an older sibling, and particularly in my case, being an older sibling to triplets, having Mm. lost, they, they were born quadruplets and one was lost early meant that you know, my mother had her hands full. And so that sense of responsibility, I think, has also tracked forward in my life really in a positive way and that I can both be playful and a leader maybe in the same moment. So tell me about a time you were fearless. There's so many. Pick one. I mean, <laughs> Highlight one for us. <laughs> this is also a fascinating question to me because it is one that I have been asked before. And I think for readers and for an audience, you guys can almost point to all of these places that I was, quote, fearless. And yet I think in the moment that we undertake those acts, it's not about being fearless. It's actually about the solution. So Tamara was not a fan of mine. And one of the biggest reasons is that I was fearless with her. Mm -hmm. I forced the family intervention. I pointed out the lies and the inconsistencies. I pushed 
my mother, who I am very reticent to ever battle with. And I pushed Tamara and I pushed everybody, not really understanding that I was being fearless, but because I understood something was wrong and I wanted to make it right. And I think... You know, also my mother is a social worker and has been the head of a lot of different children's aid society, women's college hospital, a leader and a speaker in mental health. And I think the result for me is that I am emotionally more fearless as a person in all sorts of ways, in my personal relationships, my friendships, my family. I'm fearless for the people that I love. Hmm. So you're in the creative industries and you're doing such exciting work. Talk about creativity and maybe sometimes waiting for the muse. Yeah, there definitely is the blank cursor, blank screen phenomenon in our (laughs) business. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, creativity, authenticity, and big life experience are three things that really go together. And I try and just get off of the white screen and off of that need to wait for the muse and turn back to my sense of play in the moments that I feel stuck. One of the reasons that I wrote this and had really not been a writer for the decade in between is that for me to be incentivized to write at this level, there need to be big feelings there. Mm -hmm. Big things need to have happened to me. And so you are in some ways waiting for those big things, but in other ways, in smaller creative things or in endeavors like film and television, where it is really a team sport and I have a lot of other voices at the table. It's all about going back to that sense of play and making things fun and exploratory and creating safe spaces, which is something that's talked about, I think, a lot with actors, like what it means to let an actor try something new or make a mistake up there and why the best theater and the best film and TV is all in places where actors were in safe spaces. And I think that this really applies to all storytellers, writers, directors, showrunners, creative producers. We all need to feel safe to spin out those ideas and make mistakes. And in those mistakes will always be the gems of something. Oh, that's so beautiful. That That's so powerful too, this idea of safe spaces and how it's linked to creativity. So final question for you, Liz. Yeah. What is your dream for the world? You know, I think one of the things that Tamara taught me for sure is kindness. And, you know, I work in a fast paced sort of vicious business. I certainly am not known to be a shy retiring flower myself. And, (laughs) you know, I've really been able to find in the years since her death a place that I can be firm and assertive and affirmative and also really still kind. And I think 
now more than ever in a global pandemic, people feeling nervous, every individual in the world making choices about their behavior that feels good for them. You know, how do we navigate this world with respect for other people's choices with a sense of being kind and gentle? I think that is the heart of change. And if the world could be kind, it might be a very different place. What a beautiful dream for the world, a focus on kindness, a message we need right now from a compelling voice in Canada. We've been listening to Liz Levine. She is the author of Nobody Ever Talks About Anything But The End. You have to get this book. It is worth a read. Thank you so much for being on the show, Liz. What an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Janice. It was great for me to talk to you as well. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. We want our community to grow. Tell your friends, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for our newsletter at fearlesswomenpodcast.com to get the early scoop. Thanks again to our amazing sponsors, BDC, Lockheed Martin, and Export Development Canada. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite app. And if you like what you hear, give us a five-star rating. I'm Janice McDonald. Stay fearless. Thank you to Export Development Canada, the international risk experts, for your support of the Fearless Women podcast. Supporting Canadian companies of all sizes succeed on the world stage EDC takes your worries away and helps you grow your business with confidence. When your business has no borders, neither does your potential. Find out more at edc.ca slash women in trade. Thank you to BDC, the bank devoted exclusively to entrepreneurs for your support of the Fearless Women podcast. We love smart companies that want to amplify women's voices. For more information, go to bdc.ca slash women.